Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to what is the fifth Christmas podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. I always seem to remember to do a podcast at this time of year. And I realise it's something to do with the season, to do with the amount of darkness that there is in this hemisphere and how that affects our mental health, but also how much hope seems to be on offer in this winter solstice in this dark time and it's also made me realize I don't think I've done as many podcasts this year so I apologize for that and I'm trying to put together a fuller program for 2024 Um, so keep listening we're now going to listen to the wonderful Barnsley singer Kate Rusby singing to us about this season. Little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Carols like that reduce me to tears quite easily. In fact, this year, Laura and I kept a long-held promise that we would go and listen to the Sheffield carols. These are carols sung in pubs, not in church, 
and accompanied often by silver and brass bands from the local towns and villages around Sheffield. And um, even some of the carols are traditional words that are from Sheffield, and they're named after different parts of Sheffield. There's a carol called Stannington, there's a carol called Malin Bridge, one called Ooty Bridge, and they have really old traditional words that have been sung in Sheffield for years and years. Uh, and everyone stands round with a pint in their hands and mince pies and mulled wine. And there was about 250 people in the Rose and Crown in Sannington. And for three hours, they just sing their heads off. Um, and when we came to our little town of Bethlehem, the tears just ran down my cheeks. It's partly silver bands just do it for me. Um, there's something so melancholy somehow. We, as we get older, we become the recipients of years and years of memory. And because Christmas has that eternal quality that it just comes round every year, we tend to do the same things. It feels like an eternal return. And I think the winter solstice has that feel as well, of the eternal return of darkness, of cold, of, of, of miserable or snowy or frosty or bright crisp weather. Uh, and we see the holly and the ivy. We, f we feel the, the, the eternal return of the same emotions. But as you get older, you become like a container for deeper and deeper wells of memory. You remember your childhood Christmases. You remember all the people that were there. My dad, who's no longer with us, my grandma, my auntie doll. Um, and it, it, like I say, you just become this container for years and years of memory. Good memories, difficult memories. Some Christmases are harsh and hard. Some are filled with light and beauty. And um, if you want to sample an ex one of those experiences, just listen or read uh, Dylan Thomas is a child's Christmas. He starts off by saying, I was 12 years old and it snowed for six days and six nights. Or, or was I six years old and it snowed for 12 days and 12 nights. And then he launches into this wonderful evocation of his childhood Christmases. Um, I highly recommend it. The other thing about Oh Little Town of Bethlehem is we don't see it lying still and it is not in a deep and dreamless sleep and what shines in the dark streets of Israel and Palestine of what we sometimes call the Holy Land is is the flare of rockets the fire of artillery um, the violence of a conflict that is heart-wrenching. I have never in my life turned the news off, but I, there are times when I just can't watch what is happening in, uh, in that land. The, the pain that I feel as someone nowhere near it, I have been to the Holy Land, I went in 1989, is is unbearable the innocent suffering is is just unconscionable so in this podcast i did want to pay some attention to that 
some attention to what is happening there and like just about everyone i have no idea how this will resolve itself my absolute deep-seated hope is that it will change that people will please god say no more killing this has to stop it has to stop we can't afford to lose any more children and i just want you to listen to a as we, as we move into this section of the podcast about what's happening in the middle east um weirdly a wonderful poem by an american reclusive woman who wrote some of the most extraordinary poetry written in amherst massachusetts in the mid 1800s it's called hope is a thing with feathers and it's set to music by someone called Fami Gao. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me such incredible words hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul 
I think that idea that hope is not um, a passive thing, it's not cockeyed optimism, it's something that is active within us and rises up in the chillest land and on the strangest sea and so must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. Hope is the only thing we have and it's not a passive thing, it's an active force within us. And I was very struck, I was reading a, a Catholic periodical called The Tablet that I've always received every week and there was a fantastic article about Jewish-Muslim dialogue in the light of what happened on October the 7th and the subsequent um, invasion of Gaza by the IDF, the Israeli forces and what effect that was ha having on people in Britain and this wonderful guy called Edward Kessler who specialises in facilitating Muslim-Jewish dialogue was writing about how this had affected the dialogues that he was conducting between Jews and Muslims. And he was saying, for all the rise in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism in this country since October the 7th and across the world, and for all the demonstrations and the desire for justice and for peace, he said, it is striking how many emotions Jews and Muslims share, not only worry and fear, but anger and powerlessness. They express similar concerns about the negative impact of social media. There is a shared hunger for cross-communal friendship. Since the 7th of October, I've only travelled on the tube if my kippah is covered by my hat, said one Jewish man. Muslims on either side of him sighed in sympathy, familiar with being targeted due to being dressed differently. I worry for my daughter at university. Another shared fear was made clear. Everyone expresses concern for the next generation. Everyone expresses concern for the next generation. I was really touched by how actually their shared fears brought them together and created empathy and created dialogue. And that seems to be, for me, the only way through. I remember going to, and I know comparisons between Northern Ireland and, and uh, Israel and Palestine <clears throat> are not, they're not equivocal. Uh, they're not equivalent but I remember going there not a dissimilar time to when I went to the Holy Land and just thinking God how will this ever change and it has changed and partly I think it's changed because people were sick of killing and I hope and fervently pray that that will be the case and with that, that those thoughts of of Jews and and Muslims. This year, I've been really fortunate. We started the um, the Grim Up North podcast again, and I'd recommend our first two episodes of series two. Um, the first one was Welcome to the North question mark, and it was about immigration in the North. And then the second one is a 
is a an outdoor broadcaster walk around Sheffield using some of my poems. So I'd recommend both those episodes. In the first one, we interviewed this lovely woman called Zaba Malik, who had written this uh, great book called We Are Muslim, Please. And in it, she describes growing up as a first-generation uh, Pakistani Muslim in Bradford. Her mum and dad were immigrants to Bradford. Her dad had come to work in the mills and then stayed, and her mum came over. And she lived in facing in two directions, facing inward toward that uh, strong Muslim Pakistani community in Bradford, and then as the only... Uh, Pakistani girl in a in a in a school of white people and how it talks about how she traverses those two worlds and it's wonderful um, and I was thinking about the sort of religious instincts of of Islam and Judaism and Christianity uh, and and this this little text that she writes um, is is just wonderful so in the middle of Ramadan, the holy month where where Muslims fast during the days, uh, the hours of daylight, they don't eat or drink um, anything, and it, it it's it's such a powerful month for them. And in one one night in the, in the month of Ramadan, there's there's what they call the night of power, and if you stay up all night uh, and read the Quran and and pray then it's meant to uh, be a wonderful, powerful thing to do and release all kinds of grace from God. Uh, and she did this when she was a little girl. She stays up with her dad because she wants um, she wants the angel Gabriel to give her a musical instrument which will make her more acceptable to the white girls in the school that she's in because she feels such an outsider. Um, but she suddenly goes into this incredible description that I'm going to read to you. And there, way up in the slate grey sky, hovering horizontally above all mankind, was the angel Gabriel. Even though it says in the Quran that the archangel is so big that the distance between his earlobe and his shoulder is more than the distance a bird can fly in 700 years, I could see his entire shape. His main body was like that of a butterfly's, but without the antennae. He had hundreds of wings which were feathered and so blindingly white that they made the entire earth gleam and me squint. He had no face but an aura of extreme solemnity. After all, he was here to do the work of God, and though this was a joyous night for all those who believed, I knew that the archangel was also able to pull entire cities out of the ground using just the edge of one of his wings, if God so commanded. No wonder Dad always talked about the angel Gabriel with such respect. I had witnessed a truly beautiful thing, how fortunate we were, those who stayed awake during the night of power, those Muslims in Bradford 7, in Yorkshire, in England, and all around the world, the Ummah, the community. This was what we saw and heard and felt and knew whilst others slept. Isn't that wonderful? What a lovely piece of writing. It almost, when we interviewed her, she was a really wonderful woman. That 
passage reminded me of Blake, you know, who saw angels in a London tree. This idea of the numinous in the ordinary is really powerful to me. Uh, and hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul, angelic feathers perhaps, in Zabur Malik's case. And the other piece of text that I wanted to uh, bring in is um, is the uh, the Passover. So I've been fortunate enough to go to a Jewish Passover and we've often done it as a family. We were encouraged by the rabbi that we that I met, you know. And then we met this lovely Jewish couple who I want to say hello to, um, Joyce and Jay Belinsky from Chicago that we met on a train and have become firm friends with. Um, and, and I remember sort of sheepishly saying to, to Jay uh, and Joyce, you know, we, we quite enjoyed doing the Passover every, every, um, every spring. And he was like, wow, that's such a compliment. And, and he said it's the most ecumenical celebration within the Jewish calendar. And they're encouraged to, to invite Gentiles, people like me, to come and celebrate with them. But there's a bit in the Passover where there's a celebration of the ten plagues that were visited on the Egyptians. And, and well, is it a celebration? It's a commemoration, maybe. And you're encouraged to dip your finger into the full wine glass for each plague and take a drop out of the fullness of the wine glass for blood, frogs, boils, all the different plagues. And, and the instruction is that no matter how great the liberation that the Exodus created, it was one at the cost of the suffering of, the, of other people. So the glass of celebration is never full when other people suffer to gain your liberation. And in fact, there's a, there's a text from the Talmud that says, on seeing the drowning Egyptians, the angels, those things with feathers, were about to break into song when God silenced them, declaring, how dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? The, Israel, the Egyptians drowning in the sea of reeds as the waters went over their heads. How dare you sing when my creatures are dying? Just very powerful to me. So one of the things that I'm very struck by in all the coverage of the Middle East is the power of these opposites that Jung talks about a lot within the psyche and within our world. So we have those opposites of the, of the Palestinian people who have suffered so terribly and so unjustly. And when I was there, I thought it was bad enough in 1989. And watching the television when I can bear to do it now just fills me with deep sadness and horror. And also knowing the pain and suffering that Jewish people have been through throughout history and 
the 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 what happened on October the seventh was horrific. Um, that this these opposites that are that 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 are sitting in Israel and in Palestine. It's it's. It, it feels so easy, well not easy, but this a temptation to fall onto one side or the other. And as a Christian, as you know, I think I would still call myself a Christian, as, as someone outside the situation in so many ways, it just both sides have terrible fears and there's such anger and, and great hopes but the only hope that will come to fruition, it seems to me, is to meet the needs of both communities. And how dare anyone sing for joy when my creatures are dying. So I just wanted to raise that and, 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 and make really a, a prayer or an invocation that all of us find ways of holding opposites. Jung felt that uh, that there are always opposites. If if you were very conscious of of hope in your conscious life, despair would be somewhere in your unconscious. Or if you were deeply despairing, hope that thing with feathers would be somewhere deep in your unconscious. And you the the the, the willingness to hold the opposites to hold despair and hope in the same boxing ring if you like would would lead to the emergence of a transcendent thing something that comes up and and changes things when you don't suppress one thing or the other i'm not saying that very well but i that's what i pray for that's what i hope for that's what i think we as human beings are being encouraged to do to hold opposites until something transforms them. And I know how ludicrous that sounds in the face of what's going on in the Middle East, but I also know that somehow that is how something will change. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all and sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm i've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me poetry anxiety and vulnerability This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. There's something about the humility and gentleness and tenderness of hope, seeing it like a little bird, that it, it doesn't it wells up inside people and it's often the unnoticed the uh, people who come from below 
certainly in Northern Ireland, and, and begin to facilitate a different kind of dialogue or open a dialogue. And, and even in the, the most powerful politicians in Northern Ireland, it took secret talks and a willingness to let go of uh, all the rhetoric of power and domination. And this set me thinking about Christmas and about um, the, the whether you're Christian or not, This and, and it goes back way beyond Christianity, the idea of a divine child being born in the winter is, is, is a very ancient one. And, and Christianity in the nativity narratives takes up that theme that somehow one of the best, most powerful, interestingly enough, evocations and descriptions of the way the divine interacts with human beings is in vulnerability, is as a tiny child. That, 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 <laughs> if you took that seriously that the most powerful divine uh, incarnation was as a vulnerable tiny child that had to be looked after like human babies do then you would start thinking very differently about the way we treat one another and 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 I think that is one of the messages of Christmas and and for me, one of the people who really got that, understood that, was St Francis. He is credited with creating the nativity scene. Um, apparently, one year, he was so moved by the idea of the incarnation, of, of God becoming human in Jesus. And and part of what what is powerful about the Franciscan instinct is that it, the, the the redemption of human beings of humanity was not necessarily achieved on the cross in the crucifixion it was achieved in the incarnation that god became one of us and therefore all of us are redeemed and holy and places where the divine lives and that's a powerful myth and narrative and by myth i don't mean something that's not true uh, francis really was moved by this and in this place called Greccio he apparently made a human tableau of the nativity scene apparently one witness among the crowd reported that Francis included a carved doll of Jesus and he got donkeys and cows and a, and a real Joseph and a real Mary real human beings and shepherds and kings and and it says they reported that Francis included a carved doll which seemed to be wakened from sleep when the Blessed Father embraced him in both arms. And that really touched me, that that wonderful legendary mythology, mythological story of, of, of Francis holding what looked like a carved baby and it somehow wakened from sleep, <laughs> like Pinocchio or something. Um, I don't know what made me say that, but yeah, that's such a powerful story. So I wrote this. It's called Francis and the Crib at Greccio. He, Francis, he led them up the stony path at dusk on Christmas Eve. 
he asked them to bring light, so with sticks dipped in pitch and all manner of stubby candles, they followed him to the cave. Gathering to a luminescence in that rocky aperture, his Bethlehem, earthen womb, a veiled threshold to heaven. He had found a donkey cross-backed and a cow udder full and calf needy, and with straw he coaxed them to settle into sleep. And for the pallet of golden forage, his hands, long-fingered and dexterous, had carved a babe to incarnate in wood the long-awaited one. John of Greccio, whose cave it was, witnessed the tears of Francis, flowing in remembrance of that uncertain birth under imperial servitude. And John was sure the carven fingers uncurled, chiselled eyes blinked back, the smoky lights to see once more wonder in the eyes of villains to liege lords. Finally, Francis spoke of the terrifying helplessness that was undertaken to show that each of us, womb-born, is a doorway to divinity. And each saw the ark of heaven stooping into the ordinary and the commonplace, revealing each illuminated face as God again and again and again, shouldering human form. He lifted the sleeping child, who stirred miraculously, cribbed in the tender love of one who beheld what thrones and dominations occlude, what those who gaze upward never see. He lifted the sleeping child who stirred miraculously, cribbed in the tender love of one who beheld what thrones and dominations occlude, what those who gaze upward never see. Francis's wonderful insight was that we are approached in his mind, in his thinking, by the divine from below. Therefore we look downwards, not up, to find God, to find love, to find that which makes us more deeply and truly human whether we believe in God or not, looking down rather than up, not up to thrones and dominations. And in the poem it says, what thrones and dominations occlude, make invisible, you will find by looking down, by going downwards. And that's what Francis did and found that rather than being a rich young man, being a man who changed class his order was called the orders of friars minor the minore with a with a lower class he became a brother of the lower class and in doing that found a marriage to what he called lady poverty and he didn't idolize poverty but he saw that getting rid of the things that get in the way of you finding that quiet little bird that perches in the soul called hope getting rid of those things changed everything and interestingly Francis went to the Holy Land he went because he was horrified by the Crusades by the violence and when he got to Egypt and uh, saw the armies of the Sultan and the armies of the Cardinals and the Pope 
ranged against each other with violence and horror and enmity he crossed the line he went from the christian camp to the muslim camp and then when the muslims caught him they somehow because he was with another brother illuminatus and they had begging bowls they they thought they must be holy men and they took them to the sultan and the sultan recognized something in francis and francis at first tried to convert the sultan to christianity but then i think listened with great humility to the sultan and the sultan gave him permission one of the only people of his generation to see the holy sites to see bethlehem to see jerusalem under the control of the muslims and even now franciscans look after some of those holy sites because of that and francis came home feeling devastated that he hadn't stopped the fighting and that's when he went to mount laverna and made his 40-day fast and lent and received legend has it the, the wounds of christ i think what he found was that the solution was always from looking down and from sharing the suffering which is what compassion means to compassionately share to be in suffering with those who are the most innocent the most weak the most broken so i think that's part of what francis offers us at christmas with his vision of the crib and his journey to the to the holy land and and that that hope that perches in our soul and that each one of us has to find that active uh, force so that we can look downwards and and plead the cause of the most broken and never sing when the creatures are dying when god's creatures are dying but but sing a song of hope maybe and that's what oh little town of bethlehem is for me it's a song of hope the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight and in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light let's hope so because we really need it the last thing in this midwinter christmas podcast i'd like to share with you uh, is a poem that came to me as we were going up to scotland um, on a on a snowy weekend to uh, a charity event in honor of wilma's dad who was an entrepreneur but also had cancer of the mouth and suffered terribly for a long time because of it in fact at his funeral uh, the the minister stood up and said donald malcolm that's wilma's dad was a terrible man he was a terrible man and everyone sort of took a breath and thought oh my god what's she gonna say he she said he suffered terribly he was terribly generous he was terribly dedicated he was terribly obsessed with his business and with his family he was terribly good and uh, it was a, a wonderful piece of rhetoric and use of words but it was very true uh, as well um, so we were going up to celebrate um, a, a charity event to raise money for cancer charities that, that Wilma's brother and niece had put on and we drove across the A66 um, in the snow 
thankfully it stayed relatively clear but the vistas that we were uh, lucky enough to see were so beautiful so so beautiful um, the snowy land the white of the snow the dark of the trees and the houses and the little farms scattered uh, and, and it reminded me of the carol in the bleak midwinter it was definitely in the bleak midwinter and it, it we drove up on the Saturday through all this and then came back on the Sunday and again went through it and it this poem just started to to form in my soul so um as a way of coming towards an end i'm going to share this poem with you now winter drive along the a66 the white ashes of mist soften the folded valleys the breath of december has frost whitened our road from scotch corner to brough through appleby to penrith the trees are full of angels and ravens, dark buyers bearing newborn babes. A shepherd minds his hill-born sheep, snow gathering on the tweed of his cap. White is the colour of death and life, black is the starkness in between. Moving through villages, the road is undulant, repeatedly hidden, ushering us past vernacular pubs and lone solid farmhouses in rinds of hoarfrost. The rivers have bridges that God might use and the ray cross mark the border between realms. Norse kings bear hollyberry blood, praises for Woden's day and mistletoe seed from Freya's holy buds. Oak and ash are silhouetted letters in fields like white paper, lines that are like litanies to winter and quietness, to splinters in brightness, to mentor our calmness. The ruts of wheels fill with mercury, the hard and fast borders between earth and sky no longer apply, the white fields flow to white sky, and we become, in that one given, received citizens of a wintry heaven. I was so struck by the beauty of the landscape, and I looked up, and on that road, there is a bridge called God's Bridge, uh, about halfway across, and it, uh, it's a limestone, it's a naturally formed bridge, uh, over the river Greta and the tradition is that because it, it was not man-made it must be made by God and they call it God's Bridge and um, and there's a cross called the Ray Cross which was ordered to be erected by Edmund I uh, around 940-ish and it was a boundary marker between England and Scotland so I just took those ideas um, the rivers have bridges that God might use and the ray cross mark the border between realms. This this incredible Christmas idea that uh, God crosses this bridge into the human world, uh, becoming one of us uh, and, and broke down the border between realms. Uh, that Christmas is a time to break down those borders 
and and the other tradition is that that this cross was set up to um, honor Eric Bloodaxe, the Viking king, and that reminded me that so many of the traditions of Christmas come from our Norse heritage. Norse kings bear holly berry blood, because they they the peoples of this island, the immigrants to this island quite often recognised how dead everything looks in the winter and and so the holly berries were like menstrual blood and mistletoe was the semen that would would re uh, vivify the earth uh, and and in this dark time of the solstice fertility would would emerge again um, and, and we still hold all those traditions in the days of the week Wednesday Woden's Day, Friday, Freya's Day. So I wanted to honour some of that. Uh, and oak and ash like silhouetted letters on white paper. That that it just all started to speak to me of this season. And um, even the roots of the wheels of the lorries had filled with water that looked like mercury in the silvery light. And, and somehow all those borders that we fiercely fight for we're beginning to dissolve and and make of us even driving through that landscape feel different about who we were and what our place was in the world um, so my wish to all of you is for um, a lovely solstice a happy Christmas if that's what you celebrate this time when the borders between dark and light soften um, when we become citizens of a wintry heaven and find that hope within us, that thing with feathers, so that the hopes and fears that meet in each one of us will come to be soothed and that our fears will be unrealised and that our hopes will bear fruit. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in us this night. So I'll finish by reading the poem again. Wish you a lovely solstice, a good Christmas, a happy new year. And as I say, I'm going to try and put together a more uh, rigorous programme next year so that we have more podcasts and, and we can speak with one another again thanks to everyone who's listened this year especially the Belden podcast which was incredibly popular um, and the sensitive souls one which was also really popular so I'll leave you with my winter drive along the A66 the white ashes of mist softened the folded valleys the breath of December has frost whitened our road from Scotch corner to Brough through Appleby to Penrith. The trees are full of angels and ravens, dark buyers bearing newborn babes. A shepherd minds his hillborn sheep, snow gathering on the tweed of his cap. White is the colour of death and life, black is the starkness in between. Moving through villages, the road is undulant, repeatedly hidden, ushering us past vernacular pubs and lone, solid farmhouses in rinds of hoarfrost. 
The rivers have bridges that God might use, and the ray cross mark the border between realms. Norse kings bear holly berry blood, praises for Woden's day, and mistletoe seed from Freya's holy buds. Oak and ash are silhouetted letters in fields like white paper, lines that are like litanies, to winter and quietness, to splinters in brightness, to mentor our calmness. The ruts of wheels fill with mercury. The hard and fast borders between earth and sky no longer apply. The white fields flow to white sky, and we become in that one given, received citizens of a wintry heaven. And we become in that one given, received citizens of a wintry heaven. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.